inviting, I'm inviting, we're inviting John Kelly <laughs> uh, to our, uh, our podcast today. John, it's actually paper of the month, uh, but it's a, from a couple of months ago. Um, uh, it's the IROC study, which is robotic uh, versus open cystectomy. Uh, it was published in JAMA and congratulations for that. Do you want to introduce yourself and then just give a quick outline of the trial and what it shows? Hi, Tom. Hi, Brian. And uh, yeah, this is great. I, I mentioned... It is great. Today, <laughs> it is great. Well, the trial is Sometimes. Great. It's great to be here. I mentioned to people today, I'm joining the Three Amigos. And they said, hey. <laughs> I thought you guys were the Close. Three Amigos. Close. But, but, but hey, this is the hottest seat in town. Everybody's saying, <laughs> are you listening to this podcast? Is it, isn't it great? And I'm going, what is it? So I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you very much. I had this idea. I, I genuinely thought of Three Amigos. I had this idea. I could maybe be D'Artagnan. Be yeah. The three amigos beats D'Artagnan. It's, it's all blown. It's all blown. John, it'd be great if you talked about your trial for a bit. <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. So let's put robotic surgery into context. In neurology, there are three randomized trials uh, which have founded a currently seven, soon to be 15 billion industry. And one of those randomized trials is in prostate, uh, one in bladder, and the prostate one didn't show any great difference in outcomes. The bladder called Razor showed equivalence uh, in oncological outcomes. And we devised a trial to understand, is the robotic platform better for patients who have cystectomy when we perform the cystectomy intracorporeal? So you start and you finish robotically. And we thought, well, if there's going to be a benefit, it will be in aspects of recovery. So our primary outcome for this trial was we didn't just look at length of stay we looked at the thing called days alive and out of hospital and we looked at that at 90 days so if you leave hospital and you get readmitted that all counts towards days in hospital so it's essentially day happy days out of hospital was the primary endpoint and um, we randomized across 12 centers in the uk and we randomized 338 patients, roughly equal across the arms, nicely balanced between the arms. Uh, and we follow these patients up short term and long term. And to cut to the chase, we showed that using the robotic platform, intracorporeal cystectomy, the days alive and out of hospital benefited patients having robotic surgery. We showed a 2.2 day difference in outcomes between the two arms. Um, yeah. Oh, John, I just want to interrupt. So it, it, it's sometimes hard to randomize patients to different surgical approaches or get the surgeons to buy in that there's equipoise. So first of all, congrats for completing the trial. Was that hard? Did you have a hard time convincing you know, docs to participate? Do you know, Brian, it's a, it's a really interesting question. The Department of Health you looked at robotic surgery, that's NHS England, and they said, guys, you're all doing robotic cystectomy. We've looked at the evidence. There is no evidence. We're not going to commission this service. Uh, and we said, that's really interesting because that gives us a position where we, we accept as equipoise. It gives us a position where we could withdraw robotic surgery from the standard of care and only offer it in the context of a trial. And that's how we got surgeons to buy in. We said, if we, if we continue to do robotic surgery, robotic cystectomy, we may not get commissioned to do this. And there's an argument then, well, we'll go ahead and do it and all of that. And blah, blah, blah. But if we then say that we withdraw robotic cystectomy as the standard in your institution and only allow patients to have 
that procedure in the context of a trial, we could nail it. And it worked incredibly well. Yeah, John, incredibly second well. question, 90 days at a hospital. That's an endpoint that I've not used before. That's not, I haven't heard of that endpoint before. Is it a valid endpoint? Yeah, surgeons love it. Surgeons look at two metrics. They look at 30 days and 90 days. After that, complications are probably few, not few and far between, but they're less frequent. So the majority of complications occur, 70% occur within 30 days, 90% occur within 90 days. So if you're looking at early surgical recovery, that's a very valid time to look at. John, is 2.2 days statistically significant? I'm bought into that. You've got a p-value of 0.01. But is it, is it clinically meaningful? Does it make any difference, really? I mean, many patients wait for, is it not more important to have a timely operation? Many patients wait for weeks and weeks to have an operation. Is, you know, is, it best, is it worth waiting two weeks extra to have a robotic surgery? So this is where, this is where we, we come into the, the trial and it's a, a, a multiple endpoints. First of all, if you systematically across the randomized arms reduce length of stay, it's not just, you know, you go home from six to five, you do, but ducks line up. Things happen that are measured as better for the patient, excellent. So when we looked at all the secondary endpoints, the quality of life indicators, the uh, physical activity, the uh, uh, return to uh, activity in one sense using the used uh, sensor devices, pretty much across the board, we show that there's a benefit for the robotic platform. Now, what that really means is that the, the quality of care that you give to a patient uh, is improved. Is two days worth that? We thought it was because when we spoke to NHS England before, we said, look, we know patients get home early. They said, well, show us. We said, well, they're going to get home two days earlier. They said, that seems fine. Uh, and that was why we chose that. But length of stay is really a surgical quality metric. And if you reduce it by one or two, that's it. So it wasn't just the two days per se, it was the sequelae of being in the hospital for two extra days and cost and complications to the patient, et cetera. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. So if we look at quality of life, we used three metrics, uh, quality of recovery, QLQC 30, uh, BLM uh, 24, and all of those show a benefit for robotic. Now, what's interesting is that as we move from 12 weeks on, they start to merge. So the whole sense of robotic surgery is that the patients are recovering quicker, they're being more active early, and they're really, uh, you know, you, can you can't really translate that in a cystectomy practice, but in other surgical practices, that probably relates to getting back to work uh, John, earlier, et cetera. John, Brian and I spent quite a few podcasts with a chap called David Seller, who knows quite a lot about quality of life. And, and David tells us that it's not all about just the statistical p-value. Uh, he says it's you know the, the actually the me it's the 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 difference is important because clearly if you many of these studies are overpowered for quality of life, and your difference on your EQ five D is zero point zero seven. It's got a p value of zero point zero three, so it's statistically significant. Yeah. How clinically meaningful are these quality of life questionnaires really over this period of time? You know, is it just you know feeling two percent worse, or is it actually some patients being in bed and others running around having a nice time? So that's why surgeons don't necessarily do trials in robotic surgery. You see your patients moving quicker. You see them more active. You see them, you know, there's a classic surgeon does first procedure ever in the world. Patient stands out of bed the next day and does toe touches or something like that. There's a marked difference. Now, it's not for all patients. We still do complications. There's a marked difference in the quality of life uh, metrics. And of course, these are early. So we measured them quite frequently in that early period, especially the quality of recovery and the who does too 
measured throughout the early period, and 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 we see it then merging. So we say, patients, it, it just stacks, it tells a story, and no one aspect of this stands alone. But if you take the days alive and out of hospital, the quality of life, the physical activity, that all tells that story of a patient recovering uh, quicker, more efficiently, and and sooner uh, by doing much, robotic. How much more complicated and expensive is a robotic surgery than an open? So we will conduct the formal health economic analysis. It may well be robotic surgery is not cheap. Mm -hmm. uh, we now have we have maybe four competitors out in the market now. We're not seeing the prices of the consumables drop drastically, but that will. There's now a, a competitive landscape, and I think what we see today is not where we will be in five years' time in terms of cost, but we will conduct a health economic analysis. What what we do know is that our anaesthetists will say to us, you can't operate on this patient unless you're now doing it robotic because they've got poor performance status. So if we take older patients, patients who are less fit, they really need the robotic platform. It's kind of one of these uh, self-fulfilling prophecies. It doesn't really matter. You know, this, is, this will run like robotic prostatectomy, um, just sensible evidence, but no real solid evidence and surgeons will adopt it. So it's mm -hmm. very, very reasonable. Surgeons do, who have spent a career doing open cystectomy, they do it very well, but surgeons coming after them will all, all do it robotic. John, what proportion of patients in uh, the US and Europe are currently having uh, robotic cystectomy, and how do you think your results will change that? Uh, it, it's, it's changing. It, were, it was uh, 10 years ago. It was a 30-70 in favor of open. It then became a 50-50 about three years ago. Contemporary, I would say it's 70-30 in well-developed uh, uh, medical healthcare uh, economies. So I think it will probably settle in around 80-20 in the next year or two. Does this practice, does this paper change practice? It kind of... Let me put another one to you. So we looked at complications and we found that both operations are associated with complications, much less blood loss with robotics. There's much less wound uh, and infective complications, but the VTE risk in robotic surgery was 1.9%. And these are clinically presenting VTE. And in the open surgery, it was 8.3%. So even if you had in your realm, Drug A and drug B, and they're both kind of similar, you could argue. One's, one's got a relative reduction of 20% over the other one, but hey-ho. Um, and if, if you say, well, one of these drugs has a VTE risk of 9.3% or 8.3%, you would drop it tomorrow. That won't happen with open surgery because surgeons do it well. But mm -hmm. we're just going to see it phasing out. And robotic surgery, I feel, is now the gold standard. John, there's been a trial called the Razor Study, and the Razor Study yeah. was published in the Lancet, and that was also a randomised trial looking at cystectomy, uh, and they randomised 350 patients um, that completed the trial in 2014. Um, yeah. What did their results show? So this is very important because prior to Razor, there had been studies that tried to randomise, didn't reach, and reported things like different oncological outcomes in terms of peritoneal metastatic uh, occurrences afterwards and rates. Razor showed that there's oncological equivalence between robotic and open. Our data is showing the same thing. Razor was subtly different to IROC in that in the Razor trial, the, the diversion, whether it's conduit or near bladder, was done open. Uh, and things have moved on, and we said, well, the, the benefit is probably in doing the whole thing intracorporeal. So this is the first 
of the three urology trials to show the clear benefit for the robotic platform. And John, did you measure cancer outcomes in this study? Is there any reason to believe one approach is better than the other? Or is really the benefit in everything we've talked about, not so much cancer? Uh, yeah, our, our cancer outcomes show no difference, similar to Razor. I think the benefit is early recovery. Do we as a society uh, in our different developed healthcare systems pay for that? Uh, I feel that you know, this is well worth pursuing because patients recover better. We have to decide whether we as a society should pay the difference. And in time, hopefully that will become nullified by the competitive landscape. John, would you rather go to a hospital doing 30 cystectomies a year open? Or would you rather go to a hospital that's doing two robotic cystectomies a year? <laughs> Tom, that's a real conundrum there. I have to think about that one. So, I, so what, what I think, we, what, what we did, we, we measured this across, you know, in the UK, we have a, a centralised system where you have to do a minimum. We showed that the robotic surgeons were uh, very competent. They were experts. The open surgeons were expert. We audited their work into the study. And so we had quality metrics before uh, surgeons got, in, got involved. The most important thing for any complex surgical procedure is the volume outcome relation. And that's whether you're doing esophagus, cystectomy, major surgical resections. If you don't have volume, you don't have outcomes. At least you can't measure your outcomes if you don't have volume. So uh, to answer your question, uh, I'd rather just not have a cystectomy. <laughs> Good. last question for me that's related is there if i'm a, a patient or a patient advocate is there a, a minimum number of robotic surgeries call it per year that you want your surgeon to have done is yeah, there so, a number? The, so there's an interesting study uh carl werberg from uh the netherlands has just published with us looking at the learning curve and it is a very complex procedure we feel that you need to do about a hundred of these procedures per unit before you're competent so if surgeons don't have volume, problem with setting you know, volume thresholds is you'll, you'll look at outcome data and you'll say, this looks good, this looks good. Is it 20? Is it 30? Mm -hmm. I really think you need to knock off 100 of these cases to be competent and you need to be doing one a week. So that's 40 wow. cases per year. So that's pretty high volume. Um, John, yeah, that's... about 20% of patients had neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Uh, what was the outcome in that group of patients and what's your, your take on the role of the adjunct chemotherapy? So, th so this is interesting because this is a question I wanted to put to you, amigos, nay sages of the <laughs> Spotify channels. When we, look, when we look at the adjuvant data, the adjuvant trials had difficulty recruiting because patients weren't well enough. It's not just robotic surgery. We have also introduced standards such as enhanced recovery after surgery for in the old days, you came out of surgery with a drip in your nose. Now you come out, you're given a sandwich. We move patients along very quickly on enhanced recovery protocols. And patients are fit. And when you look at the data of the adjuvant, they're largely now meta-analyses. You, you question, do we, I'm totally on for multimodality therapy. I think it's so important. We don't use enough of it. We don't use enough strands. But you question, for all patients who have muscle invasive disease, Three weeks, three cycles of gemsis, that's what, 12 weeks, maybe two weeks run into that. You have to recover, so that's four weeks before surgery. Do the math, guys, you're smart, two, 12, four. That's a lot of weeks that you might be sitting out, and it could even stretch to 20 weeks. Now, my argument is 
you might have a little clone sitting there going, chemotherapy, love it. I look better radiologically, but I'm still cloning. It's still here. And do we need it for all patients with muscle invasive disease? In the UK, it's a standard that you have a patient presented to an MDT. They might have a small T2 tumor, but the option given to that patient will be to follow neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by surgery. And the question to you guys is, with the evidence uh, in the adjuvant setting and the knowledge that our patients are fit and active, should we be more um, should we be more selective about who gets neoadjuvant and who gets adjuvant therapy? Well, sorry, I think the answer is that the, the only positive trial, single trial, was in the neoadjuvant setting. There have been positive meta-analysis in the adjuvant setting, but there were a series of underpowered, as you said, there are a series of underpowered trials the most famous of which was the URTC one that caused Sternberg led, which actually the hazard ratios were 0.5 for PFS, DFS, and 0.78 for OS, but there just weren't enough patients for it to be significant for survival. Um, you know, we haven't seen, as you know, with adjuvant nivolumab, their PFS data in the ITT population was 0.7, 0.53 in the biomarker positive, um, and that, but there was uh, no OS data yet. So, you know, if you actually wanted to treat apples and apples of the same sort of comparators, one should, you know, be, be I guess looking at adjuvant nivolumab and saying without a survival signal, we shouldn't be giving that yet. But that's not really the question you've asked. I think the question you've asked is, you know, why not give adjuvant rather than neoadjuvant? I think the issue is we just haven't had those positive trials in that environment. Countries like Germany do rapid cystectomy and if they're no positive they select patients for adjuvant therapy that way i'm not sure no positivity is the best way of doing it i mean that's not all germany by the way there's there is some neoadjuvant chemotherapy but they're much more open-minded about giving adjuvant i mean my impression of it for what it's worth is that i think that perioperative chemotherapy is associated with some benefit and i actually think that as you say the timing of the operation is more important than whether you give neoadjuvant and adjuvant. And if there's a six week or a two month delay after neoadjuvant chemotherapy to have cystectomy, you're better off doing it adjuvantly. So it depends a bit on how the hospital works, but I, I agree that, that I agree the obsession with neoadjuvant chemotherapy is not necessarily supported a hundred percent by the data. And there's how is it in the states, Brian? How is it in the states? Well, the the paradigm is the same. We say yes, you should give neoadjuvant platinum-based therapy, but in reality, many patients, maybe most patients, don't get it. Certainly outside academic centers, maybe for those practical reasons that you both cited in terms of delay, and they often see the urologist first, of course. So at our, at our center, most people get it, but I, I think in the U.S., gosh, I don't know the numbers offhand, but I think it's a minority. And, and I think the reality is there's a subset that, that would benefit from neoadjuvant, subset from adjuvant, and a subset, you know, for both or neither. But, but obviously we have no tools yeah. to identify them. So I think we'll continue debating this. Yeah, I would like to see maybe a little bit less of trial by MDT where it's just cast out to potentially a young person with a small volume tumor. Very different to where you want cytoreduction or you've got positive yeah. nodes and, and also the patient gets both both bites of the chair they can have it before or after i think that's probably a, a nice uh position to be in to offer patients but uh we we sway way way towards the neoadjuvant yeah uh, john any more questions from you well um i could go <laughs> on with questions <laughs> so 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 here, here, so I don't suspect we will get the adjuvant trial because we've got multimodality therapy. But the other thing that's coming in is this sense of radiotherapy as 
um, bladder sparing options. And I, again, I think, well, on what data are we looking at? We don't have comparative data, but we have now the Razor data, we have the IROC data. And if we look at our outcomes from that, we have the trial to compare that to as BC the 2010. Um, and I just wonder whether we should be offering patients with muscle invasive disease who have got early disease, the concept of radical cystectomy, plus or minus neoadjuvant or adjuvant chemotherapy, and you're basically sent off with minimal follow-up. Um, and that's very different to how we would manage patients having uh, chemo radiotherapy. I, I would like to see these two head-to-head -head in some shape or form or fashion, because I'm not sure that I have, I have the equipoise, but I would, I would imagine uh, and power the study to show that radical cystectomy is superior to chemotherapy. Do, do you think that trial disease. could be done realistically? I think there may be a possibility we could look at. Uh, so if we come back to combination therapy, I, again, I think we don't do enough of that. Should we be looking at patients having radical cystectomy with early radiotherapy before or after cystectomy to mop up minimal residual disease in the pelvis, followed by chemotherapy? I think we sit with these patients day in, day out in our offices. They're maybe 50, they're young, and we say, well, we've got one or two things to give you, and that's it. I don't think we do enough for these patients. So we could conceive of multimodality trials where we use combinations. I'd like to see uh, in the future, John, a position, you know, I'd like to see adjuvant immune therapy for some of the selected individuals. I think neoadjuvant treatment for big bulky tumours is important. I think that cystectomy is going to have an important role to play. I think bladder sparing approaches will be attractive for subgroups of patients. I think the problem we've got at the moment is we really haven't developed biomarkers well in this setting. And I agree with you. We're treating, you know, big bulky tumours in young or individuals in a similar way as an early T2 lesion in an 83-year-old female, um, which, you know, I'm not sure that neoadjuvant chemotherapy and is, is, and then you might say, well, give them radiotherapy, but it comes back to your point. Do we know who's benefiting more from radiotherapy or surgery? There's a huge amount of work to do in this area. In the end, we're going to have to try and select patients, and we're going to have to select on biology as well as just the, uh, the phenotype of the patient in terms of how well they are and how old they are. Let's do it. Nice, John. Brian, Very uh, educational and one of the more entertaining podcasts I've done in question. <laughs> so. I'll, I'll get my, do you send me rosettes? Do, do I get a badge? A certificate? You get a sticker. We have stickers. We can, uh, maybe we can I've get a done, sticker. And a beer. A beer I've done it with the Amigos. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, John. Got that note, John. Thank you very okay, much. Okay, guys. Take care. Bye. See you soon. Bye. Bye.